podcast is brought to you by QT Faithful to your monthly hymnal devotional, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the majestic soundtracks from the Tarantino verse. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and co-host of the B News USA podcast, Mr. Pat Fournier. Together, we will be giving a thorough examination of the tracks that reside on the Death Proof soundtrack. Welcome back, Mr. Fournier, and may Tarantino be with you always. And also with you, Scott. I'm so glad to be back. It's been a while. Last time we discussed the From Dust Till Dawn soundtrack, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, you seem to be one of my soundtrack bitches this year. Seems to be I have uh, three of you who have really liked to do these, so you fill in when other people don't want to or don't you know, have the balls to do it. So I truly appreciate it. How does it glad feel to, do it. to have celebrated your first official 4th of July as it was American. very cool. Yeah? It was very cool, yes. Do you have all 10 of your digits? Still, I still do, yes. Then you didn't celebrate it right. <laughs> you fucked up. <laughs> I know. I, did I got, anybody I, in your family get injured or a neighbor or did anyone's pool get have a firecracker go through it or did anyone get hurt in the festivities? Not that I know of. Then you did not do it properly. I know. It's you my first failed. one. I got to learn. I know. You yeah. know, it's a better luck next year, you know. Yeah. Everyone knows. I, I'm a, I'm did you at least, how was so. this? Did you at least let young children under the age of five play with fireworks or fire? I didn't let anybody. I didn't even get any uh, anywhere close to a firework. Uh, uh, way down the street, they were popping them. My dog got scared, so we, we just we just went inside. Oh. I'm old. I'm old. I'm also an old. Uh, I'm, I'm also a, a middle aged person. So I, so I guess true. you know I, I skipped all the all the the digit uh, busting firework play. I guess you know uh, you did just say that you're middle aged. I'm about to say something that's gonna hurt you and hurt me as well. I already did. You know I don't. Uh, I don't really watch TikTok. I watch uh, Instagram Reels, mm-hmm. which is TikTok for adults. There was a gentleman on there talking about middle age. And technically, middle age is really the ages of 35 to 45, as mm-hmm. most Americans die somewhere between their 70s and 90s. Now, I'm not sure, I don't remember your age, but I am 47 and will be 48 at the end of this year. I am past middle age now. I am now... Fuck it. I'm over the hill. I'm headed to... I'm on a highway to hell. Fuck it. I'm a year younger than you, so... So we are both past middle age. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on the same boat. When I saw that video, I was like, oh, this motherfucker is right. Like, Because we all think that we're going to be 100. Yeah. We Mm -hmm. do the numbers math game that we're going to make it to 100. (laughs) (laughs) Bullshit. I'm making it to 100. We'll be lucky. We'll be lucky if we make it to 90. Although we are going to have a front row to either climate change will get us or AI like the Terminator. Like, we are going to eventually live... The disaster movies of our childhood. Yes. That's one exciting thing, right? Like, I know it's bizarre, <laughs> but we will live to see the end of man. And I'm kind of excited for that. I'm sure there's some people listening and they go, they're fucking crazy. 
No, the signs are there. You keep your head buried. But yeah, either AI is going to get us, which I'm excited for. T2, T1000. Who knows? Maybe someone will come back. It's going to be awesome. Or we're going to have like, you know, the day after tomorrow, whatever. Climate change. You know, you'll be living up here soon. I will save yes. a spot because you'll be moving up soon because you will be underwater soon. Mm-hmm. So don't worry about it. One day we'll all, you know, we'll just be sitting outside, just recording for nothing for maybe posterity, for maybe some alien race that comes by who finds it one one day. and uh, We'll send that yeah. in, in space. Yeah, yeah. They're like, what the fuck is a Tarantino? <laughs> What's a Tarantino? <laughs> they, they, they had weird religions on, yeah, the, on that planet. Yeah, fuck, a church. church fucking Tarantino. idiot. <laughs> All right, well, you're not here to talk about the doomsday. No. But you are here to talk about the soundtrack to Death Proof. Now, you are normally not on the regular show sometimes. you. As I look back on it, you've always been a part of the non-technically Tarantino films. True, True Romance, obviously, is your favorite, and you will yep. be joining me next month when we kick on that 30th anniversary yep. special. Yep. You've been on the From Dust Till Dawn main episode last year. Mm-hmm. You've done the True Romance and From Dust Till Dawn this year, but you did do our Bible study for Once Upon a Time. So that was your first yes. foray into it, and now you're back as we're into Death Proof territory. How do you feel about the movie Death Proof? Well, I uh, first went, uh, went seeing it in the theater when it came out with the uh, part of the grindhouse double feature and after that all my all the times that i watched it after that was on dvd because i off, of course mm-hmm. bought the dvd and you know it's it's a myth amongst uh, tarantino fans that this is one of the bottom tier tarantino movies even qt said that it's his least favorite movie he did but et cetera, et cetera. so you always hear yeah that proof is okay and yeah, that proof you know it's 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 not as great blah 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 and the last few times I watched it was on DVD, and I was like, you know, I understand because there's a lot of, you know, scenes that are kind of unnecessary to kind of, and you have you have to place it in context of the whole uh, uh, Grindhouse double feature, which is what I haven't done in a long time. I just watched it by itself on, on the, the Blu-ray edition, and it's just a bunch of scenes with the characters talking, and I found it was, it was kind of wonky, kind of clunky and recently to uh, prepare for this episode i unwrapped my uh, copy of the grindhouse double feature blu-ray and i watched uh planet terror i I watched the whole thing like back to back planet terror uh, with and 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 dead proof after and i have to say the version that is in the double feature is a much better movie than the standalone dead proof Hmm. how long has it been since you watched the the uh, grindhouse cut. It's interesting. It's been it's been a minute, and okay. I will explain why. And this is going to sound very snotty, and I do apologize, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I remember having seen this in the theater probably three or four times, and I remember obviously the first night seeing it. It's always that freshness. You're always very excited. So obviously, Planet Terror goes first. Rodriguez is out the gate first. Pretty damn good movie. Pretty enjoyable. He did the best job of recreating a B movie. He created a great B-movie slash zombie kind of flick. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Loved it. We get the amazing middle fucking trailers, which finally, my favorite one, they're actually making and coming out Thanksgiving. I hope it lives up to the hype of the trailer. <laughs> I loved the trailer. I'm so happy Eli Roth is finally making that as a real movie. I'm really hoping that's going to come out great. And then, of course, Death Proof comes on. And obviously, you know, I like Rodriguez, but obviously I'm a, I'm a Tarantino fan. I mean, I'll watch Rodriguez stuff. I like his stuff, but not as much as I like Tarantino. And as soon as it came, I was like, oh, I love this, right? So I go, we go back and see it again, and I realize, I'm like, oh, I've got to sit through fucking grind, or 
Planet Terror first. Mm. I know that was terrible, right? So I'm like, all right, we'll get through Planet Terror. Then I love the middle, and then, all right, finally, Death Proof again. So for me, I always find myself, wait, I'm like, okay, I got to sit through this first movie that I don't really care about as much anymore, and I really want to get to Death Proof. So I was really happy when it came out on its own. Without the Blu-ray release of it, we wouldn't have one of the songs that's on the soundtrack we're about to talk about either. Correct. Which is one of the better songs, and maybe one of his more famous needle drops that we wouldn't have got in it. Now, that being said, I do enjoy the movie the first time seeing it where you think you're going to get the fucking strip tease and it just cuts to them walking out. Mm-hmm. That is a funny little moment. Yes, and and honestly, watching the Grindhouse, I, I would say the theatrical uh, cut, it's a much better movie because it gets to the point. It gets to, there's no, you know, he cut a lot of the fat. I, I find when he put back in the Blu-ray edition, it's bloated. It makes it bloated. I don't find the the dialogue is as witty and it, it it's meant to, to be campy. I understand that. It's meant to be kind of like, uh, you know, Texas Chainsaw, like the beginning when they're in the van and they, they, they're talking and ha ha ha, they're laughing. It's meant to be campy. I understand that. But to me, the the grindhouse cut the shorter cut is a much better movie because we get to the point we meet the girls and then boom we have you know stuntman mike and then we have the the you know the accident slash you know kill and then the second you know it, it's a much tighter movie it, it gets more to the point i, I find the second the, like the, the the longer one is more like a almost like a once upon a time in hollywood more of a hangout like especially the first half when when you're in the chili the texas chili parlor and they just they're doing shots and then you know tarantino they, they do a shot of chartreuse blah 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 it's more like a hangout hanging out listening to qt's uh, uh you know jukebox that which we're going to talk in a moment it's much more of a hangout the grindhouse cut i find is more it it's more efficient. It, it's it it gets more more to the point. There's less less fat, and and I find it's a it's a better movie overall. I, that's just my that's just my my opinion from from just watching it a couple of days ago. I hear what you're saying. So you actually prefer quicker Tarantino films than the majority of the films that he puts out. <laughs> this one, in this instance, I do. In this instance, it's I do. It's okay to be wrong. It's fine. That's why I brought you in. Just give <laughs> for, me. For, for How about this? I've watched the the regular version so many times now that I appreciate it more but i do also understand what you're saying i do get it it's a different movie for example i'll I'll take just one specific example the scene where butterfly is outside and the guy with the black shirt and wants to omar. make out with her omar doom Om- yeah no no the no the other guy the no guy i know he's the- named omar the, the other guy's named omar in it but the actual actor's name is omar doom who okay. actually goes out with her yeah sorry right so uh, so he's trying to get her to go make out and blah 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 in the car and it, it lasts it, you know it lasts a few minutes that's totally like you, that's a useless. It's not witty. It's not funny. It's. I get it. It's campy. I get it's. A, you know. I get it's a slasher movie. Blah blah blah. But to me, that's that scene is unnecessary. For example, it, it's not great. The dialogue is not great. It's oh, quit you whining. Blah blah blah. It's just. I don't know. It's it, to me that that is not in the Grindhouse cut, and I find it's it's a much quicker movie. You get to the point. We meet the girls, and then we see Stuntman Mike, and then he gets in his car and he kills them. It it, it feels more efficient. I, I find it, I find it's a better movie, and and maybe the reason why people put uh, Death Proof way way down in his uh, filmography is probably because of the. I find it's bloated. Now now that I've seen the shorter cut, I find I find the regular Blu-ray cut is, is bloated. But that's that's just me. And now it's time to reach on your pews and pull out your Church of Tarantino hymnal as we begin our devotional with the soundtrack from Death Proof. 
This soundtrack was released on April 3rd, 2007 by Maverick Records. It features 16 tracks from various artists and has a running time of 30 minutes and 30 seconds. Although this is one of QT's best soundtracks, unfortunately, it has only sold a little over 100,000 copies in the U.S. To me, this is one of the best soundtracks, in my opinion. We'll get to your thoughts on that later. Mm -hmm. But it does start with our first track, which is The Last Race by Jack Nietzsche. Jack Nietzsche was an American musician, arranger, songwriter, composer, and record producer. He came into prominence in the early 60s as record producer Phil Spector's right-hand man. He also worked extensively in film scores and in 1983 won the Academy Award for Best Original Song for co-writing Up Where You Belong with Buffy St. Marie. This song was composed and arranged by Jack and was actually released as a single in 1965 prior to being used as the theme song for the American teensploitation sci-fi film Village of the Giants later that same year. Now this song is the opening credit song to the film and is heard again when Abernathy says, let's kill this bastard to begin the climactic car chase. It's It comes from another movie. I think in the the framing it's used, it, you know, it works for a car movie. Like, especially when we, we open it up, you know, we, we've got butterflies feet on the window, we're speeding through. It works in the grindhouse feel. It's not the best opening song and maybe one of the weakest songs on this album. It's not as memorable as the other other opening songs we've had up until this point. Your feeling? Well, while doing uh, research for this podcast, I noticed, I realized, and I learned, which I didn't know, that this this song was made for a movie, 1965, uh, Village of the Giant. Now, <laughs> have you seen Village of the Giant? I have not. <laughs> I'm assuming you have now. Well, it's on YouTube, and <laughs> I... I can just, you know, tell you and the listeners to go check it out. It's the, I forget the name of that uh, series. It's uh, it's the series with the people making comments on it. Uh, oh, yes. Um, Mystery you know Theater 2000. Yes, yes, correct. And thank goodness, because it's very, very campy. It's cheesy. Do you know the story? Do you know the plot? No, I, I'm, okay. I'm surprised that the name of the song is The Last Race when it's about the Valley of the Giants. Correct. Okay, so uh, the plot of Village of the Giants, it's based on H.G. Wells' novel, novel. A group of teens eat food grown in a lab, by the way, by young Ron Howard. He's the scientist, and it turns them into giants. End of plot. Huh. Well, there you go. And then the rest, the rest of the town tries to kill them because they, they are giants. And, mm. of course, there's a very uh, subtle scene where they eat the food and they get really big. And the women's clothing, you know, they get really big. So they just, you know. And, and you can say that the tits come out. It's, this is a it's, Tarantino podcast. So we're not doing this. This isn't Sesame Street Live. All right? <laughs> it's very. We're adults here. All right. I have an explicit thing. When you hit click the sound, it does say E. <laughs> What what I'm hearing is is you got very excited and you don't want to get no, excited again, so we're gonna not talk about it. <laughs> it is so cheesy. Scott, you have to check it out. It, Here's it's... the thing. I've watched a lot of cheesy films lately, and I don't think some are meant to be. I guess we'll cross-promote here. I also have a podcast with Mr. Smith that we do, not just the Cheeky Bastard, but we do Dropping a Bruce. And on Dropping a Bruce, I've been watching a lot of the B-movie offerings from Mr. Willis at the end of his career. Now, some of the things that these movies are missing is some TNA. The only thing that makes anyone want to watch some of those films are from the past. 
is because of the TNA or because of the ridiculous violence or the ridiculous things in it. And that's what some of those movies were made. They're like, look, we have got no story here. As you said, some kids are going to eat some radioactive food, become giants, and at that point, we're just going to fucking wing this thing. We're going to see what happens. And the guy goes, well, if we're going to, girls going to get big, what do you think would happen? Titties are coming out. Like, then titties are coming out. And that's the only reason people sit in the theater like, oh, the titties. Like, look at these giant titties. Like, no one is there to go, oh, well, I wonder what, what Jack and the Beanstalk's story this is going to be like. There's you know a giant I mean? tarantula so, at some point. Ooh, of course there is. There's always a giant spider <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> and the music is in the middle of the movie. It, it's a, a bunch of times, you know, it's, it's just that 60s, you know, uh, drive-in, you know, driving, yeah. house exploitation type of stuff. It's it's really of its time. That, that's that's all but I'm the, but, but I can give it credit is at least it knew what it was and went mm-hmm. with it. A lot of the movies today try to be something it's not and they suck. Just go with it. Just fucking go with it. Oh, they went with it. Give us, they no, no, I'm saying, but like, even today, like, yeah. give us what we want. Stop uh-huh. fucking around, all right? I think it's good. I think it's it's a it's a good track. It's, uh, Jack Nietzsche was a collaborator of Phil Spector, as most people know, and he, he kind of went on his own. He produced uh, Neil Young. I think he produced some songs for the Rolling Stones for the, I forget what the movie, uh, Performance, I think it was the name of the movie. He performed a couple of songs with Mick Jagger and some musicians. And I find this track is pretty good. I like the basics, that that really low low guitar. It kind of reminds me of some of the, some of the spaghetti western uh, soundtracks. Kind of, you know that that you really know what you low, mean. Mm-hmm. that really low guitar. It's not his best track though in in that era and that style. But it's not bad. Well, I mean, he was putting it on for a movie called The Land of the Giants. So Correct. I mean, give give him a little. The Village know. of the Giants. Excuse me. Oh, whatever. Me. Sorry, The Village of the Giants. <laughs> but it's so it's campy. Yeah. It's it's telling us that this movie is going to be campy. That's it. To me, to me, that's his function. How about this, though? A little synergy is uh, one of the first shots we get is of Jungle Julia walking, and it is low angle, and she does look like a giant walking in front of us. Uh-huh. Ah, synergy, bitches. <laughs> Takes us to song number two, and this is where, for me, the album starts to get really good. It starts to kick in, and it's the song Baby, It's You by Smith. This song was written by Burt Bacharach, Luther Dixon, and Mac David, and was originally recorded by both the Shirelles and the Beatles, becoming hit singles for both groups. However, the highest charting version of the song was by the band Smith. Their cover of it reached number five on the Billboard Hot 100 charts in 1969. It appeared on their debut album, a group called Smith, and was arranged by Del Shannon, who altered the traditional vocal arrangement for a more soulful rendition. It was ranked number 20 on Billboard's year-end chart of 1969, and is the group's most successful release to date. This song plays at the Texas Chili Parlor as the twins from the aforementioned Planet Terror, if you watch that that way, walk in and we find the amazingly gorgeous Jungle Julia wildly swinging her head around with her hair flopping in the wind. Later we hear it again, which many people probably don't know this, but Lee sings this a cappella style while listening to her iPod in Kim's car while Abernathy is sleeping and Stuntman Mike is being a perv and licking his hand to touch her feet. Every time this song comes on, this is when I know the the movie's going to get good. Like As you said, one of the best parts is this first half. The first half just leans into this entire jukebox that is of Tarantino's with all these classics, these classics that most people would not have heard unless he unearthed them here. And I love Baby Too. It is such a great, funky, amazing track. And honestly, I didn't realize how much of the songs on this album are just embedded in my brain to the visions of the movie. You know, like I can hear some other songs, and I, over time, I don't always hear or see the movie in my head. But for this one, because I've only I only ever heard it before like this, right. it's just stuck. How do you feel about Baby? It's you. Actually, I had never heard it before watching the movie. I never even heard of the band. 
Smith. Me either. And honestly, just by listening to the sound of the song, I thought it was from the 80s for some unknown reason. I can't tell you why. Really? But it's, it's yeah, I don't know what, I don't know what it is, but it's obviously from the 70s. And I, obviously the, the, the singer is just, uh, I, I did some research. Her name was Gail McCormick. Just unbelievable vocals unbelievable. That's, mm-hmm. that's just incredible did you notice scott when um they going into Wero's to eat when butterfly is outside and she turns around and she sees uh stuntman mike in the car and mm-hmm. he, he kind of stops down the street and once he starts off you hear baby it's you it's he's listening yeah. to that song in the car did you did you catch yeah. that yep they, yeah. they do that little mix yeah right I think it's a great song. I love uh, it. The Beatles covered that song uh, also before before they did. Um, the version of the Beatles is not as good. Like no. the, this, this, I love the Beatles, good. but no, it's not as good. Yeah, no, Mm-mm. no, it, it, no. Uh, and what I, uh, I really like about this soundtrack, and this song's a good example, is the analog sound of mm-hmm. the actual recording. It's obviously QT's forty-five that was digitized, like you yeah. can tell. Mm-hmm. You can tell it's a 45. You can tell it's a vinyl. You can tell it's not something that was digitally mastered from some source tapes. Yeah. Like, you know, like like albums, they, they go back to the to the tapes and then they, they digitize them and they put them on CD. And it sounds great, but it sounds like the tape. This sounds like the 45. Yeah, that's fantastic. It, it has it has that really organic raw sound at some some point it, it's it's almost distorting but but in a good way in an mm-hmm. analog tube you know 45 the sound is really good here's the thing you and i know exactly what you're talking about there may be younger listeners who have no idea and that's perfectly fine but that's I know okay. exactly what you're talking about it feels like i'm listening to his jukebox yes and it is this actually. is why this is one of my favorites and, and maybe then makes- i'll tell you if it is or not yes it makes it so much better than if you would be recording if you listen You'd be listening to the the like I said, like a digitized version of the master tapes, which would sound pristine, just like they sounded in the studio. This sounds like you're listening to the 45, which is a totally mm-hmm. different thing. I, I mean, you know, I, I'm yeah. I know I'm getting to audio file, you know, type of uh, cork sniffing. <laughs> type of you know considerations, but but you know you understand what yeah, I'm I saying. Do. I know the listeners. On You've got those little 45, you know, when you had the record player, little 45 mm-hmm. uh, adapters. You've got those nipple clamped around you. It's fine. It's really fine. No, <laughs> no one can see it because this is audio, but I can see no. it. I see him poking through your shirt. I'm it's, fine. it's just a podcast. Don't even worry about it. Yeah. No, the <laughs> thing about this album, and I think this movie, which is what I, I don't know, there's just something about just the imagery, the way that he was able, I mean, this first half of the movie, the music is as important as the scenes it's going with. Mm-hmm. They, they are one and the same, which is why we get a lot of close-ups of a new record going down. Correct. It, 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 it's almost like saying, hey, something new is happening. Like we're now changing tone or changing speed here with mm-hmm. this record coming on, you know? And, and this, this this older sound uh, goes with the, the aging. I don't know if it, I forget if it was digital or if it was, I think for this one it was digital. The aging of the, the movie itself. Yeah. Like the, it really looks like the 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 copy of the movie mm-hmm. has been shown in so many. That, that's yeah. on purpose. It's the mm-hmm. grindhouse experience, and the fact that the music also sounds very organic and and you can hear the clicks and some of the songs on the soundtrack you can hear the you know the pops and the mm-hmm. crackles of the of the vinyl. 
it 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 goes with that aesthetic of the, of that that old that movie that's that's been shown a hundred times. And well, even for know. this scene, it goes with the aesthetic of the first half of the film being in Austin, Texas, a very hip area. You've got Jungle Julia being a very hip DJ, someone who would know this kind of music, being from that era and wanting to listen to this. This what you know. This wouldn't be the stuff. Like as we'll get into the song, she decides to have them play, which ends up being her death march. But you know what I mean? Like there's just it's intentional. She is plugged in, and this is the stuff that someone of that time frame would have listened to and in the area that they're in, like, which is why at the other part, the girls are more, are movie stunt people. This is not the music they'd be listening to. No. Even though Lee kind of is, but I think she's listening to a different version because she's not singing it the same way, but she still sings it beautifully. It leads to track number three, one of only a few needle drops that are source material from the movie world. He gets really heavy into that after this album. This is one of those last albums until, imagine Django, he kind of goes between two, but pretty much he starts to move more towards his needle drops being those of score pieces. But it is one again, once again, one of his favorites, Ennio Morricone with Paranoia Prima. This song originally appeared in the 1971 Dario Argento Giallo film, The Cat on Nine Tails. This was just one of six soundtracks Ennio composed for Dario over his illustrious career. Now, this song plays the very first time Butterfly sees Stunt McMike outside of Guero's, which, as you said, as that fades out, we hear Baby Chew playing. And it plays once again when she sees this car in the Texas Chili parking lot. When she goes out to have a smoke and the light gets flipped on in one of the more funny moments where Tarantino intentionally has a flip on the light. It's a little tongue-in-cheek moment. Again, it's the master, Mr. Morricone. It's a great little number, and it's pretty much the horror theme of this section of the film, which the second half of the film, that's not really horror. It becomes the car movie, even though it is, he's still a serial killer trying to kill them. It does become more of that car chase, which is why yes. most of the music that we have on the soundtrack really comes from the first half of this movie. That's true. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of Ennio Morricone, but I'm more of a fan of his the scores for his Western movies. You know, for good. Not as big a fan of his Jalo scores. No, I'm I'm not a big Jalo person. I, I I have friends who are. I'm, it's just not it's not my thing. Like maybe I'll get into it, and in five years I'll be all about you know uh, uh, Dario Argento. Well. It's fair you say that because I've just I just watched Dario Argento's very first film for which my. Listeners would have heard two weeks ago for the Under the Influence. And what we looked at was the one of the movies that really plays into this first half, which is Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Now, this is that's considered the first real giallo film to become popular, which really pushed that genre of film into the forefront of uh, the mainstream. And I wasn't as impressed as I said in the episode. That being said, I hadn't seen any giallo films prior to, and I haven't had a chance to check out since. So... It is now in my to-do list to see more shallow films so that I can be more versed in them before I give any kind of like, oh, they suck. You know what I mean? I really want to kind of give yeah. give more. So I don't want to give the very first one from this guy as being like, well, that's it for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm no. done with this thing. I, I was told I was told it's a whole universe. Like uh, uh, mm-hmm. I have friends of mine uh, in France who have a podcast about movies, and they did an entire, I think it was like a four-hour a podcast about giallo movies and they themselves uh, in the podcast they admit that it's very it's a very specific type of movie and like you said you can watch one and go well i don't like this you know and then you mm-hmm. have to watch a second one and you have to kind of get it. It, it it's it's got codes the codes are very specific yeah. And sometimes, like, it's very, like, bizarre, and it's it, it's a very different type of movie that we are used to, like, the, the, the people who are usually 
uh, who usually watch like American movies, you know, yeah. like you have, you have your protagonist, you have your, your villain, you have your good guy. And then, you know, and then this happens. And apparently I've never seen one, but Giallo movies are completely different than that. You might not at all, uh, uh get attached to the, the main, uh, the main, uh, protagonist. It's, it's very bizarre. It can have like different weird scenes with colors mm -hmm. and it's, it's very specific and it's not, it's, it's very not Italian, like, right? It's not, not at all. The codes of the American cinema are not, do not apply in that, that cinema. So uh, apparently it's very, you, you can have a very bad reaction the first time you, you watch one, as is what I was told. I know why a lot of horror fans like them, especially if they're horror, the slasher genre, because the Giallo film pretty much did help or really was the grandfather of the slasher film that would become popular in the late 70s and 80s in America. So you can see where, you know, that kind of trajectory was. So I can see why horror fans who are fans of American 80s and 70s slashers would be fans of maybe Giallo films because they are the ancestor to themselves. Right. I'm going to give a few more tries and we'll I'll let you know. Well, so this one to me works in the movie, but by itself on a CD. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's a skip track for me. Yes. And look, I, I know... There's it, a couple. It, there are three on this that are... But that's that's my feeling. That's my that's yep. my opinion. Because I know people that, that collect uh, uh, vinyls of giallo soundtracks mm -hmm. like it's a thing like they are way into those 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 types of uh, yeah. soundtracks and that's that's awesome I, it's just not something i respond to give me a new morricone give me give me a, a you know a dollar you know a, the, the the dollar trilogy the you know the, the, yeah. just give me that stuff that's what i like <laughs> <laughs> you know give me eastwood on the on, on the old uh you know horse and with a poncho and and, and a little cigar that's what i like <laughs> <laughs> It's just not my thing. Well, that leads us to track four, which is Jeepster from T-Rex. This song was the first single off of T-Rex's sixth studio, Electric Warrior. The song reached number 28 in Australia, number 73 in Canada, and peaked at number two on the UK singles chart. This song is widely considered as one of the band's best songs. Billboard ranked it as their number three hit, while Paste ranked it as their number one. Now, this song plays when Jungle Julia calls Lana Frank to find out where she is, and then, after she goes off the text and it goes into another song that will be coming up on this episode, she then comes back, and the song picks right back up where she was all the way up until they take their shots of chartreuse. Another fantastic song. Works so yep. well. You know, yep. T-Rex has got a lot of uh, hits from the 70s, and this is one of those ones where it kind of slides by people. I'm glad he picked this song. Yes. As correct. opposed to... As opposed to the one song that people yeah. in America know yeah. from T-Rex. And most, gone. Yeah, I mean, it's, a great, it's a great song, but he has so many great songs. You, you know, it's you know, so uh, most people outside of the UK don't realize, but T Rex Mark Bowen was more popular in the UK than David Bowie at the time. Like he Be was careful. a bigger star than David Bowie was Be in the careful. UK. If you could, if you no, but it's true. UK I mean, fans, from he's, the UK, he's, he's a Frenchman, so listen, you take it anybody out Anybody the from the UK can can confirm Mark Boland was an icon. David Bowie was a superstar, but Mark Boland was even bigger in the UK than, than David Bowie was around that time. I'm talking about the early 70s. And this is actually the one song, I think, on that soundtrack that I knew prior to watching the movie. And it, hmm. it almost took me out of the movie because I was I was all in. I was in, in there. I was in the chili parlor. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, T-Rex. Oh, cool. And it, it almost took me out of the movie because I knew the song. And I, I love it. I, I love T-Rex. I'm a big fan. I, I, I'm really glad to see that one. That's one of my favorites. So, yeah, that's a good pick. Good pick. 
uh, Quentin. I also like the fact that most of the soundtrack in that first half of the movie keeps the movie moving. Mm-hmm. You know, like it just does. Like, you know, we go from conversation piece to conversation piece, but it's, like I said, it's all tempoed by the music. Edgar Wright of uh, English fame, Mr. Mr. Wright, as I call him, uh, his movie Baby Driver is basically a musical. He has yeah. timed everything to the songs. I'm not saying this is the exact same thing, but there's a similar vein to this where each moment a new song comes on, it does help pace that next moment within the film, and it's paced to these songs and is meant to keep the tempo going. He knew that there was going to be a lot of talking. How do you keep it upbeat and tempoed and, and fresh and moving? You just keep changing it from one cool pop song to the next cool song. So That's a great one. That's, that, that's one of the highlights of the soundtrack for me. It's one of the, one of the better songs. What, what do you think? I love it, but I really like song number five, mm. which is Stago Lee from Pacific Gas and Electric. This is a popular American folk song, also known as Stagger Lee. It is about the real-life murder of Billy Lyons by Stag Lee Shelton on Christmas Day of 1895 in St. Louis, Missouri. The song was first published in 1911 and was recorded in 1923 by Fred Waring's Pennsylvanians as Stag Lee Blues. Pacific Gas and Electric was an American rock band in the late 60s, early 70s, whose version of the song was the B-side to their highest-charting hit, Are You Ready?, which was released in 1970 for their album of the same name. Now this song plays as we're introduced to stuntman Mike while he is He's devouring a scrumptious plate of nachos grande it works great because just the way it starts and the song itself is such mm-hmm. it's tied to who stuntman mike really ends up being in a way he's not as bad as staggerly but it's just it's just the way that the harmonica and we've got him sitting there with the icy hot jacket on what i mean the one thing i've said many times in this podcast is tarantino knows how to introduce characters yeah. and this introduces stuntman mike and what a fucking amazing way to introduce it. And if you listen to the song, I absolutely love it. I was listening to the other day preparing for this, and I was listening to the words. And now Stagger Lee's supposed to be this bad motherfucker back in Western times. So bad that, you know, when he kills somebody, the sheriff's men are like, you have to get him yourself. We, we want no part of Stagger Lee. However, I want to ask you a question about the song. Now, in the song, Stagger Lee kills a man because the man was rude to him. Mm-hmm. Had enough of him. Is Stagger Lee a bad shot, or was he toying with the man because he shoots him Three times in the shoulder, three times in the side, and then the seventh bullet finally puts a hole in the middle of his head. So my question is, as I was thinking about this, is Staggerly a bad shot, or was he just toying with this man? What do we think? I'm not sure, but I, I know it's an old blues song. That's that. Yes. That is by no means the first recording of Staggerly. No, it's, it, it's a song that's as old as time. That, but it's that, a great that, recording of it. it. It is, and I had, I had actually, I actually never heard of that band before, and and I'm I'm glad QT put that on the soundtrack. Apparently, it was the B side to their biggest hit, which I checked out, and eh, not as good as Stag Lee. It's not. It's it's like gospel. It's like rock trying to be gospel, and it's kind of derivative. I don't know. I, but this this is this is amazing. Mm-hmm. You know what that that reminded me of? Reminded me of Taj Mahal. I don't know if you're familiar with mm-hmm. Taj Mahal, but the whole vibe, the whole musicianship, the the even the vocals, the it just reminds me of that that first couple of Taj Mahal uh, records. It's just amazing. It, it's one of the better songs. Like these two, like T Rex uh, uh, going into Staggerly. That that's, that's a strong one-two punch. That is a great song. Staggerly, I'm not sure. Um, to be honest with you, when I listen to the song, I don't listen to the lyrics that much. <laughs> Next time you do, you'll listen to them. Right. But, but I, I listen to like the just the vibe of the music, like the the bass, the drums, mm-hmm. the, the harmonica, the just the soulfulness of it. Yeah. It's, it's it's a great track and and it's really a deep cut because I would have mm-hmm. never heard I would have never heard that song if QT wouldn't have put that in, in on this soundtrack. 
That's for sure. And and I love that type of music from that era. And I never heard that. I don't know about you, but no, I never heard it till I saw it in the film. And this is one of the soundtracks, which is why it's probably my favorite. It has so many great songs. I don't know, know which one's my favorite. We know. We I know. I really already. don't know which one's my favorite. Like, I love Stag <laughs> Lee. I love Baby It's You. Like, and we're gonna keep going through. Like, there's four or five songs in here that's like picking your favorite kid. Like, I don't know which one's my favorite. But yes, yeah, Stag Lee is. I just, I just love it as the introduction to Stuntman yes. Mike. It's Normally, perfect. when you're introduced, now again, when we use the Jalo mu- uh, music from Ennio, it's to talk about his car. That's the real danger. Is the car. Mm-hmm. So we see the car both times. It's almost like we're seeing the knife. But when we introduce ourselves to Stuntman Mike, not many times in a Jalo film or even American slasher films, the killer is very mysterious. Or, you know, in Jalo films, they're mysterious. We don't know who they are usually to the end. And in American films, it's usually some fucking master wacko who can catch you no matter what. I mean, you could be running. You're he disappears Usain out of nowhere. Yeah, and he's just like, he limps and has like, he's in like a, a <laughs> rascal that's got no battery power and he's got asthma, still catches up to you and kills you, you know? So yeah. this is one of the few movies where we actually are sitting and listening and learn about our serial killer, our actual killer is right there in the bar with us, which is great because it sets it up for the second half of the movie when we just kind of, he's now in the shadows lurking. I mean, you know, there's the, you know, and all the little, you know, the music for them, but yeah. he gets this really cool fucking funky song. You're drawn to him immediately. You're like, he's eating the nachos. And then when they talk shit about him, but oh, it's from a film of their time machine, you're almost like, I can't wait till he kills them. You know what I mean? Like we're, 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 we're like, I cannot wait till he kills these cocksuckers. Which is the one bad thing that didn't happen. He didn't kill those two little fuckers. That's true. But it, the the funny thing also is when he, he talks about all the credits, all, all the, the shows and movies he was in. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's another proxy for QT. Like he, he was in the, you know, this this show, blah, blah, blah. And you have you have no idea what I'm talking about, huh? That's that's QT. Mm-hmm. That's 90% of QT, QT's life. He talks yeah. about stuff and then he, you know, he gets so into it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he, he, he realized everyone's like, eyes have glazed over. Yeah, like, yeah like, uh-huh. Oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> That's that, that would that was QT put put himself in in, in that character for a little while. I, yeah. I, I thought that was I thought that was clever, and I, I like the way he eats his nachos. It's almost mm-hmm. gross. Like he's yeah. he's got it all of his mouth, and it's it's gross. But you've had food that's so good, you don't care. Well, yeah. like, but it, it it makes him human. It makes him uh-huh. like a regular real person, and which is why you're drawn to him. I mean, Kurt Russell. I mean, who's who's cool? He looks Kurt cool Russell, as fuck. You know? He looks so fuck. Fucking cool. Oh, no. <laughs> you know what I mean? He just looks so fucking cool. You're like, I want that icy hat jacket. I, you know, I need a scar. Yeah, like, I know. He's like, just I want so a scar. fucking cool. I, I see yeah. him, I'm like, I want a scar on my face. He's so <laughs> fucking cool. And did, did you notice? I, I know, I know you noticed that, but his shirt from uh, the Big Trouble in Jack China, Burton's tank top is hanging up. It's on the wall. Yeah, it's just those little uh, details. It's such an underrated it movie. It is. It is. It is what it is. Leads us to song six, another great song, The Love You Save. Maybe your own by Joe Tex. Yusuf Aziz, professionally known as Joe Tex, was an American singer and musician who gained success in the 60s and 70s. This song was a single off his 1966 album of the same name. The song reached number 56 on the Billboard Pop Chart and number 2 on the Billboard R&B Chart. This song plays as Butterfly selects a song on the jukebox and then proceeds to seductively shake her hips. This is also where we get the moment of Stuntman Mike talking with Pam before he eventually will take her on the ride to kill her. What I like about this song and what I didn't... I'm going to be completely honest with you, right? Every time I've heard the song, even in the movie, I thought this was a black woman in the vein of maybe an Aretha Franklin type who could hit the high registers but can also get to the low registers. I don't know why I didn't realize the name was Joe Tex, Mm -hmm. but I've been confusing Joe Tex. Yeah. Yeah. I've been confusing Joe Tex 
with a woman, mm-hmm. a soulful gospel singer, this entire time until about maybe a month ago. When I was like, I gotta get ready for this one. And I was like, that's Joe T-. I'm like, oh my God. And then I think, I got you. I think that's the point. That's the part of the song. Right. He sings this song. You go, oh, he's a chick. He goes, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Scott, I, I, I'm like you. I, I never got this song until maybe yesterday. I was doing a research and I found a video of him singing the song live on a TV show at the time in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And I really watched him sing it. And I realized that this song is not a love song at all Mm-mm. because you just, just the, the law uh, the love you save the blah, 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 love is Maybe like an afterthought, yeah. Yeah. But, but it's at the end of this, uh, at the end of the, the, the chorus or verse or whatever, the rest of the song, it's a social commentary song. It's just like those old blues songs that were, it, it was, it was the African-American singer talking about his life experience and how he was completely downtrodden and, and just completely under the control of, of the, the white man. This song is the same thing. Like he talks about being abused, being refused, piece of bread, and he had to smile and apologize. This is a black man in the 60s telling the story of his everyday life. Because if you, and, and, and they just disguise it, disguise it as this song, and at the end, oh, you're the love you say, blah, blah, blah. They disguise it as a love song, but it's mm-hmm. not. It's a black man telling about his daily experience. And if you listen to uh, um, interviews of, of black entertainers in the 50s, from the 50s, they will tell you exactly how they were persecuted by the police when they were traveling from show to show. There's There's a... Bo Diddley, there's a Bo Diddley interview when he, he tells the story. They were in a car. They were just driving to the next show. And some white cops, of course, they, they were probably in the South, right? And they got stopped in the side of the road. And they, the, those cops humiliated them. They just played with them because they had, you know, this control because they were black men. And this is, this is the same thing. This is a black man telling you that is being oppressed day to day. And they just disguise that as a, as a love song, but it is not like if you listen to, I never listen to the words really, because you know, it, it's a, it's a beautiful soul ballad. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you just, you, you, you're in the, the kind of atmosphere that it creates. But if you listen to the words and, and you realize it's not about love at all, it's about the experience, the daily experience of, uh, of a black man in the sixties. And probably still today. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately that, that hasn't changed. No, but an excellent, another excellent song. It just slows things down. It tricks you. It, it does. It he's, able, he's able to bring the the speed of the film, the mm-hmm. you know, the tempo of the film down, but without it, like suddenly the brakes being put on, right? Like, he, like you said, like you said, it's a soulful song, so there's still that. You, there's an emotion still tied to it, so you don't feel like we're just suddenly, you know, going into like some kind of piano concerto, and you're like, okay, this is gonna get slow. You know, he just has this amazing way of knowing where the tempos need to shift, mm-hmm. but how to shift them without putting the brakes on and suddenly bringing everything to a grinding halt. And the song tricks you into thinking it's a love song. And mm-hmm. like you said, the movie puts that song to slow down the tempo, but and at the same time, it's not slower. You, you hang out with that, that, that group of people. No, that's the great thing about uh, the Tarantino films. You know, it's not just really cool needle drops. There is usually a point. They usually do try to tie in somehow. Not all of them do, but there are moments where you can really tie into some of the things that the lyrics are saying that will help tie into that scene of why it's playing there. It's not just there to be to be cute. It's a great tune, it, and again, it has that 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 vinyl forty five sound. It, it sounds great. It, it's a great tune. It leads us to song seven, "Good Love, Bad Love" by Eddie Floyd. 
Eddie is an American R&B singer and songwriter, best known for his works on the star record label of the 1960s and 70s. This song was the B-side to Things Get Better, released in 1966. Now this song plays as Dove, played by Eli Roth, and Omar, not played by Omar Doom, are getting the girls <laughs> drinks <laughs> and resumes after Butterfly sees Mike's car after she goes outside for a smoke quick. It's also playing while they talk shit about Mike and he hears them when they make the BJ and the bear reference and they said he fell out of his time machine. And they also show themselves to be true fans of the Cosby show as they're trying to get these girls drunk so they can take advantage of them and head out, out to Lake LBJ for hopefully a little BJ is what they're hoping for. <laughs> But they get no such luck as, uh, I, you know, I kind of wish they were taken. I, I'm going to be honest with you. Yes. So they could be in the car too. But I do wonder if Stuntman Mike would have killed them if they'd gone in the car. If they had taken the two guys or three guys with yeah. them, would he still have gone after them? I wonder. Probably not. I wonder. It's an interesting point. It's one of those things that no one really asks about, but I wonder if they things were different, would he have still gone after them? Uh, no, because that's not his fetish. Hmm. Interesting. How do you feel about Good Love, Bad Love by Mr. Eddie Floyd? Well, I, I grew up listening to a bunch of stacks and Atlantic and to a lesser extent, uh, Motown. I love that stuff. For some reason, this one just flew under my radar. I never heard it before. This soundtrack. It, it, it's, it's a good, it's a good slow, you know, soul song. It doesn't draw attention to itself. It, it's kind of like for mood, like we were talking about. Uh, I believe we talked about this type of song when we talked about the uh, soundtrack for um, From Dust Till Dawn. We talked about the Stevie Ray Vaughan songs that were all of a sudden, they, they, they would still set a mood, but they would, they would not, they were not intrusive. They, they it kind of sets a mood, but it, it does not draw attention to itself. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, that. That's a good example. It, it's a, it's a serviceable, you know, sixties soul ballad. I enjoy it. I still enjoy yeah. it. There's not like if you compare it to like the the most well known songs of Otis Redding or Sam and Dave. It's not it's not that. It, it's a little. It's a cut under that. I would say. But it, but it's good. It's good. It's, yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. I, well, again, like all of these songs are those gems, diamonds in the rough, where you know mm -hmm. you don't really realize them. You know these they are, these are either songs that you would have had to have heard on someone else's record collection, or if you have like some of the you know Sirius XM channels, maybe you get them on one of these deep tracks. But they're not ones you would normally hear, which is what I like about them. Is they're not right. the Otis Reddings and the, and the usual go tos Correct. You know, Correct. so well that's that, that's why QT is is really great. Like he's been doing that forever. Like if if you listen into a Pulp Fiction soundtrack, he, he just pulls songs that you might not have heard on the radio before, you know. And yeah, that's, and, that's and they work, and they're great. And so that's no. why I really do love it, is because now it becomes one of those songs where you're like, yeah, it's not an Otis writing song, but at the same time, it kind of works there. You know, you, you've now got this in your bag of tricks to listen to because now you know it. It's now in your uh, it's on your Rolodex. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you now know this song and you know, mm -hmm. I, I really do appreciate that about what he adds in. And you know, of all the songs that kind of get slid to the background, which this one would be, of all the ones we've talked about before, they've all been just kind of like, yeah, they're just there for the moment. But this one still stands out to me. This one's actually a really good song that I don't skip. You know, like some of the others are like, okay, mm -hmm. yeah, I know why this isn't a thing. Okay, I'll go past this one. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of this one. But this, this does not fall into that category. Category, at least for me. It's Stax. I mean, I, I haven't heard a bad Stax, uh, you know, single. I, I have, they, they made uh, three box sets, like the first, like the first uh, years. And then there's a second box, second box set and third one. I have two out of, out of the three. And it's just, especially the first one. And I, I don't know if you own that one. The first mm -hmm. uh, we'll Stax, the, the first Stax, it, it's every Stax 45, A side and B side. Like the first CD is like the, the first track is their first uh, 45. 
the A side and then the second track is the B side and, and on, on so on and so forth. It's amazing. Y'all, you have to get that, that box set. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, it's, it's stacked. It's like the, um, you know, people say you either Elvis person or, or a, a Beatles, Beatles person. person. Yeah. Well, to me, it, it, when it comes to soul music, you're either a Stax person or a Motown person. Oh, okay. I'm a Stax person. Oh, all right. I like Motown. Motown's fine, you know, but to me, it's a Motown's low... fine, he says. It's fine. It's great. I, I Those love temptations. The, I love they're the all temptations. right. I love Marvin Gaye and all that stuff. It's He's great. okay. But the right. gun to my <laughs> head, if if I have to choose Stax or Motown, it's Stax, without a doubt. It, it's, right. it's a lot grittier. It's a lot, you know. They, they don't have the, the those the violins and the, it's it's musicians. Great. I think they call musicians. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean the arrangements, yeah. the fancy arrangements with with the you know violins and stuff. It's grittier. It's it's Booker T and the MGs and whoever whoever in the singing booth. And it's just it's it's more it's more rock. It's almost it's more rock and roll. It, it's a more more of a rock. Uh, 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 mm. Instrumentation than Motown. Motown is amazing. Don't get me wrong. But if I had to pick, I'm, I'm more of a Stax person. All right, there you go, folks. But what are you? What are you, Scott? I like them both. I love the R&B and soul, the late '60s and '70s. It's what I feel is missing in today's music. In my well, opinion, of course. in black music, it's missing. It feels like it's a genre that's just disappeared. I know there are still people out there working within it, but it's just just gone. Speaking of some old soul sound. Takes us to track number eight, which, if Mr. Fournier's head is away, we would never get this song. So fuck Mr. Fournier's and his way. Because this song is a must. This is a must song. This is the Stuck in the Middle with You song for this album. And it is Down in Mexico by The Coasters. This song was the debut single for The Coasters, released in 1956. The song was written by Jerry Lieberman and Mike Stoller and appeared on The Coasters' 1957 album, The Coasters. The song peaked at number 8 on the R&B chart. The version of the song that appears on the soundtrack was re-recorded in 1973. The song also appears in the film The Hangover Part 3. Now, if you don't know, get your head out your ass, get yourself, get your shit together, because this song is the infamous song that plays while Butterfly gives Mike his lap dance. Now, in the original Grindhouse version, it is cut. It's a very funny cut. I remember the very first time we were watching the movie, people groaning in the theater that it was cut out. Uh, it was a great tease, and I gave him credit for it, but I'm so glad it got put in. Not because of the... Str- it's just a great scene. It, it really comes together. You get humanization of Mike and the song. I mean, you know, when you think of strip songs, you always you go back to, like, the, the hair metal days of the 80s. You know, you're thinking, like, girls, poison. girls, girls, and poison, girls, poison, girls. sugar on me, and all this stuff. But this just really, really hits. Now, there is something that my good friend Sam Aversa, who was on the Death Proof episode over a year ago, there's something we would I would love to find, and I would not been able to find it. But the one thing we all know about Tarantino, and especially if you watch Pulp Fiction behind the scenes, you can watch him dancing and setting up some dances in the movie mm-hmm. for the dance thing. There has got to be a video behind the scenes of him showing Butterfly the strip tease he is intending for Mike and him doing it in front of Kurt Russell. And if I could find it, it's like the golden ticket. I've not been able to find it anywhere. You just think it, it exists? Or I know you, it exists. You know, this is QT mm-hmm. still in his mid-40s. QT is still <laughs> young at this time. This is 16 years ago now. You think he's QT is QT is for... I'm not saying he's grinding, but I'm saying he's going to say, here's what I would like, you know, he's showing her what he wants and what he's thinking and then letting her do a thing. But you know, there's a scene and Kurt Russell, whoever is standing has got to be sitting there. I want to see this. I want to okay. see this oh, that's, badly. That, I think it says more about you than it says about QT, Scott, but let's All just, right. 
Go to YouTube right now, <laughs> listeners, and look up the behind the scenes of Tarantino during the Jackrabbit Slims twist contest. And you can see him on the side of the camera literally dancing as they're dancing. He's going crazy. He loves it. There's no fucking way you're telling me 13 years later he suddenly got lost that maybe now in his 60s, but not in his mid-40s he wasn't. He was still very excited. There's no doubt in my mind that he is dancing some way. Plus, he'd been drinking chartreuse all fucking night anyway. That's so true. <laughs> this motherfucker is doing some kind of dance or showing him how. If anyone can find it on the dark webs or whatever, please, please let me know. I have to see this. God has the world to see has it. to see this. It's got to be fantastic. <laughs> but anyways, this song is amazing. Yes. It's amazing. I love it. It works so, so fucking well. So well done. I give the young lady who plays Butterfly such credit for, for doing this. I mean, Kurt Russell's amazing in his reactions to Like, it's just such a good scene. Classy done. Like, it's still kind of a striptease, but it's really a lap dance. But Tarantino's able to, in that scene, get them to do something that's seductive, that's definitely very flirty and sexual related, but it doesn't cross the lines of taste. And that's what I like about it. So all these people give him shit about feet and all stuff. He doesn't mistreat his women in his films. No. Yes, there's a little sexual thing going. But there's no, you know, it's just a little lap dance. It's not, I mean, she barely even is grinding on him. You know, it's really well and tastefully done. Very seductive and works really well, in my opinion. Other movies would have gone overboard. You know, there been some twerking and some bullshit going on. <laughs> but this really, really worked. Your feelings on the song or on the scene? Both. Uh, well, I'm, I'm I'm concentrating on the song because I, I haven't watched the scene in a while. Oh, that doesn't sound like why he's concentrating on it. <laughs> whatever, sir. You and <laughs> Steve true. Smith, you and Steve ought to get together and have some kind of whack-a-mole podcast where you two talk about. <laughs> there you go. That's a new concept, the whack-a-mole podcast. Oh, the two of you can talk about the scenes you may or may not have. It'll be, we'll have a fans can like uh, email in. Which one of us is the one who did this to the scene? So go ahead. Sorry. Anyways. No. And no, I'm just going to say that I absolutely love the coasters. A lot of people kind of set the coasters aside as like a novelty act, you know. Um, but they had, first of all, they had great songwriters like uh, Lieber and Stoller. They, they wrote songs for Elvis and they also wrote songs for the coasters. They were a big deal, the coasters in the 50s. Yeah. Like uh, Poison Ivy, Love Potion Number no. 9, all, all that stuff. Uh, Youngblood, I mean, if, 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 you, if you know the song, the cover by uh, Bad Company, the original is by the coasters. The coasters were great then. I absolutely love the coasters, and I love this song. The, the, the character they talk about is who plays piano in a honky-tonk yeah. in Mexico. <laughs> Every time I hear that, it reminds me of... Uh, Warren Oates is um, the character in Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. It, he, it, when, when we first introduced to Warren Oates' character in that movie, he is playing piano in a honky-tonk in Mexico. I always see Warren Oates when, when, when I hear that song. It, it's, it's just a great movie. The movie is great, but the song, the, the song is absolutely I mean, it's great. There's the bass line, the you know, the the bongos, the 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 background vocals. It, it, this this is a song I can listen to on repeat and never get tired of it. it it's okay. I'm I'm not gonna show my <laughs> my cards, although I probably already have. Once again, but yeah, I love this track. What what do you think? It reminds me a bit of when we talked about from Dust to Dawn. It's in a similar vein, but it's well done, like After Dark by Teal and the Tarantula. Mm -hmm. That song and her dance, you're like, whoa. This is a little more upbeat, obviously, mm -hmm. but still as seductive. It works. It works so well. Both of them are just genius. 
plays by both of these gentlemen, which is why, like I told you when we recorded that, I truly do believe that from dusk till dawn, the filming of that movie, working with Robert Rodriguez, and then the adding of the music to the score really did help inform Tarantino when he made this film. Like, you could take a lot of these songs off of this and put it in from dusk till dawn, and it would work. Correct. It's, just, it's the same vibe. It's that yeah. Austin vibe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a great song. Uh, they recorded a few different versions of this song. This is the best version. The, the other oh, one. Uh, yeah. If, if you if you go on, I don't know, uh, Spotify or Amazon Music or you, you you're going to you might find a different version. It's not as good. This, this is the best version. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great Agreed. track, and just great needle drop again. Mm. you know, that's that's what he does. He he found that song and he he just put it in that scene, and it's it it's, home run. Yes, it it to me it's just as good as the little green bag opening yeah. of Reservoir mm-hmm. Dogs. You know, it it's in that category. Yeah, it is, it is, and unfortunately, not a lot of people, unless you're a fan of that film, know because it's so underrated and underappreciated. They Correct. miss out on some of the stuff. So now it leads to one of the. And every film of Tarantino's, we always get a song that doesn't seem like it fits on the soundtrack, but yet it still does, because it just changes the mood. It fits the scene. Yeah. Our ninth song is Hold Tight by Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick, and Titch. Bless you. This song was released as a single in 1966 from the band's debut album entitled Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick, and Titch, and is based on a rhythm used as a chant by football fans. The song reached number four on the UK singles chart and was the band's first top ten hit. Now, Jungle Julia requests this song from a fellow DJ at her radio station as our first set of girls head off to Shayna's lake house and continues to play as they are brutally murdered by Stuntman Mike's death-proof car. Now, my only problem with this, and I said this on the episode, my only problem with this song is that Jungle Julia thinks that Pete Townsend of one of my favorite bands of all time, The Who, mm-hmm. should have joined this band instead of The Who. She is fucking wrong. However, this song, and it's funny thing, as I was listening to it the other day, it's got a decent guitarist piece in it, but man, would it have been improved if Pete Townsend was the guitarist. Pete Townsend was in the right band. Oh, yeah. He, Roger Daltrey, Keith Moon, John Entwell, they are fucking phenomenal. The Who is the fucking shit. And so I disagree with Jungle Julia, and she paid the price because I think Stuntman Mike disagreed, and she lost her leg in her life. I'm just saying, don't talk shit That's what about get. The Who. That's what, That's you, what get. you get. That's what you fucking get when you talk about The Who. Because you know what? The Who has a song called The Kids Are All Right. Well, guess what? These kids aren't all right. These kids nope. are fucked. But I do love this song because it's got a great drum track. It does have a good beat when they're all playing along to it. like. And it works so well with Stuntman Mike speeding at them and hitting them. And then they keep going back to when he turns the light and kills them. Yep. It works fantastically. Yes. And I do love the song. Like, for also, it's a very terrible band name. No wonder they didn't make it too far. Oh, my God. You can't have seven guys' names in the fucking band. <laughs> you just can't. I'm sorry. Sorry, uh, Dave I, D. That's guy number one. Yes. Dozy. Yeah. Beaky. Beaky. Mick. Beaky. And Titch. Yeah. T-I-C. And Fuck P. off. Yeah, no one would beat you. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. Had you heard of that band before? No. No, not until this moment. No. I mean, never. Okay. But I'll give them credit. All five of these guys. Great song. Really great song. No, it's good. Even cooler that Tarantino picks like this late 60s British rock invasion pop bubblegum song to put in this moment. Fucking works. Like it always does. I don't know why, but it does. Uh, yeah, he's, he's a master at that. But to me, what you just said about what Jungle Julia says is its own purpose. It's to make her appear 100%. like like the snotty, you know, snotty yeah. 
elitist, like my, you know, we know so many people like that. And sometimes my taste is the best. Yeah. 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 And you know, sometimes we're like that too. Let's be honest. A hundred percent. I think I just was, didn't I just, I basically just was saying, you know, so it's just, it's, it's just making fun of people who are, and, and QT's like that all the time. Every time QT opens his mouth, he's like that. That's him. Thank you. And people have probably heard in the last couple episodes, me attacking him a little bit because no one asked the boss to ask him questions, follow-up questions. Anyways, that's not what we're talking about. Yes. But, 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 but that's how QT is. Like my, my opinion. He's killing a hipster. He's fucking up a hipster is what you're doing. That's why she has one of the most brutal deaths. Yes. So, so it's setting up her being, you know, insufferable hipster and thinking that, oh yeah, I think Pete Townsend should have joined that band. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's a it's a good, it's the perfect song for this scene. But is it is it something that I'm going to put on like, oh, I want to listen to that song? Not really. It's a little frantic. I'm Like we were talking about us being old at the beginning of the podcast. I think I'm too old for that music now. You have to have take, you have to be 18 years old. You have to have taken some speed, probably some amphetamines. And, you know, if you're British, it helps. And to me, like, I'm, I'm not in that demographic. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, you know, it's just, it doesn't work for me. Uh, outside of that scene. It's great for that scene. Listen, again, myself and your wife are building the playlist for your funeral. And it is, <laughs> I want your body and this song. And they're playing behind each other. Like, it's going <laughs> to. Back to back. Yeah. This is the procession song bringing you in. And while people are viewing you, it is, I want your body. Da, it just, da. so, yeah. It almost has the same yeah. tempo. Da, does. There you da, go. Da, 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 da. There you go. See, it, it must be something about that tempo that I, I just I can't stand it's, it's it's just too fast your heart know. can't take it that old heart can't take it anymore no <laughs> so, so Pete Townsend did not belong in the Davy Joe Titch and the, and, he didn't and belong Lilo in Stitch. Titty Mitch Licky Butt Lilo and Stitch no. yeah Lilo no. Stitch fuck face no. and itchy <laughs> no he didn't belong in them no but they did have a good song in this fucking movie and mm-hmm. I appreciate them for that but when you talk bad about Pete and the who yep, that's what happens fucking leg comes off and a car comes through your windows alright folks so be <laughs> careful right. be careful out there. It brings us to number 10, which is Sally and Jack from the movie Blowout by Pino mm-hmm. Donaggio. I'm sure I butchered that, but oh, we can do better. Giuseppe Pino Donaggio is an Italian musician, singer, and composer of film and television score. He is best known for his collaborations with director Brian De Palma. This song is the love theme from Brian De Palma's 1981 neo-noir film, Blowout. Now this song plays while Jungle Julie takes a few moments to step away from the group because she's such a badass, to text her crush, Mr. Christian Simonson, who never appears in this film. Nope. We don't even know if he's nope. a, he could be some one-eyed fucking gimp. We have no idea. Wouldn't it be great Maybe if he's the, the gimp? gimp. Oh, <laughs> it? Who's the gimp? Christian Simonson. We never knew. But yeah, so it's, it's a quick, brief interlude. It's really cool. One of Tarantino's favorite movies, his favorite De Palma film, yep. is Blowout, which stars Mr. John Travolta, which is how Mr. Travolta was eventually picked to go and play Pulp Fiction because in the 70s, Travolta was his favorite actor. And there's your synergy. Blowout is the performance and blowout that John Gibbs was what he wanted to recreate and have him play Vincent in Pulp Fiction. And then he gets the song here. He thought he could be that again. He thought he could bring that out of that actor again because the last the, the few years more, before that. Even more. Right. I've but, seen but Blowout. He, he, but he, Travolta's he, performance oh, yeah. in Pulp Fiction blows out Blowout. Yeah, right. But he saw the potential of Travolta in that movie. He he saw what kind of actor he could be. And he, he was like, the last few years, like he was playing in like, look who's talking, you know, it was just like it was terrible and he's like i can bring something out of that actor and he watched he he loves blowout obviously 
And he's like, I, I, I got to get that guy. And he, he can, he can get in my, he can get that character. He can get mm -hmm. to that level of acting. And I, I watched the video. It, it was from the nineties. It was QT. He was in, um, like in a, 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 almost like a blockbuster kind of, kind of place with a bunch of movies. Yeah. And they asked him to pick his three desert Island movies from the store. Like he was in a store and they, he had to pick three movies. The first one he picked was blowout. Obviously, now we're just talking about it. Uh, can you can you guess the set the other two? Uh, the other two, Jaws nope. and Rolling Thunder. Nope. Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs. No, <laughs> no, he passed by Reservoir Dogs and he pointed it well, out. Well, like, yeah. he wasn't gonna pick it. Yet. Of course. No. Nope. Uh, Taxi Driver. Yes, that's one of them. Good, good. What's what's the last one? Oh, the last one is Rio Rio Bravo. Rio Bravo. Okay. Yeah, I knew I knew it was gonna be Spaghetti West, but I was like, ah, I don't fucking know. Which it, one. It's not Spaghetti. Rio Bravo yeah. is an American Western, but yeah, they're so all Spaghetti I thought, Westerns. I thought that was really cool. He said uh, Blowout was one of the best movies of all time. He said it's it's it's, uh, you know, it's uh, the Palmas' best movie, so it's one of the best movies of all time. I watched it for the first time recently, and it's good. Like It's, it's, good. it's good. Yeah, it's good. it's good. I know what you mean. Mm -hmm. But again, it's good. when he watched it, it was probably really good for the time. And like, I think it was 1983. Right. And I watched it knowing that it was one of QT's Desert Island yep. picks. So to me, my expectations were super high. If, if I had just, you know, watched it one night, just, oh, let me, let me just check that one out. I might have thought it was better than, you know, my expectations mm -hmm. was, was set too high. That, that was my fault. But it, it was really good. I find that piece of music, that score, is very heavy-handed. Mm -hmm. It's very sad on purpose. It's part of that campy style mm -hmm. that, that that movie is set in. I think a lot of the, the misconception about that movie is the campy aspect. It, it's on purpose. Yes. And some people thought it was campy, but they were like, oh, that's kind of cheesy. Yeah, but that's on purpose. Yeah, because he's, he's working as a horror. He's a he works on right. B grade horror movies as a sound recordist. Correct. Yes. Yeah. But and, and I'm talking about Death Proof too. Like pe people uh, underrate Death Proof because they think it's campy. They didn't know what the Grindhouse was. That's that's one of the Correct. biggest problems. Yep. It's on purpose. Like that scene is on purpose, melodramatic with that very heavy handed score. It's on purpose. Well, we're both old enough to know that when that movie came out, Grindhouse, that they were theaters that had to put signs out on the in the auditorium doors when you go in to let them know that the scratching and pops of the print are intentional. I don't remember that, but yeah. Oh, makes yeah. Sense. People are stupid. Because, yeah, so so that's, to me, what that's one of the reasons why Death Proof is underrated, because people don't realize it's campy on purpose. Some people take it as, oh, that's just a bad movie. No, that's on purpose. You know, so that yeah. that that little scene is heavy-handed, saccharine, you know, type yeah. of you know, very heavy-handed, sad score, but that's on purpose. It's there for a reason. It's intentional. It's not just heavy-handed because the director is, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. No, it's on purpose. I think that's one of the reasons Death Proof is is underrated because just people don't don't realize that aspect that it's on purpose. It leads us to song eleven, which is "It's So Easy" by Willie Deville. Willie Deville was an American singer and songwriter. He began his career as the lead singer of the band Mink DeVille. This song appears on the soundtrack for the 1980 William Friedkin film, Cruising. That soundtrack was produced by Jack Nietzsche. Now this song plays as Stuntman Mike and then moments later, Kim, pull up to the Circle A. It plays again when Stuntman Mike peels off trying to intimidate Lee and Abernathy. It is one of three songs on the soundtrack that actually come from the second half of the film. This song is not able to be found 
or downloaded on iTunes. It is grayed out on the Death Proof soundtrack, and you cannot find it as a part of Willie DeVille's collections. It came out in the 80s. So his earliest album that they have on there is like 90, 92. So if you want to get it, if you have some ripping software, you can find it on YouTube or try to find it in the store. But this song is a very hard one to track down and listen to because it's not available anywhere on these streaming services at the moment. Not sure why. Maybe Willie pissed some people off. Don't know. Maybe he slept with Steve Jobs' wife. Something happened. Maybe so. Or that part of the catalog's not in. We have two songs that really kind of uh, introduce us to Stuntman Mike. We got Stuntman Mike in the beginning of the movie. And we got Staggerly. And then we get Stuntman Mike here with It's So Easy. And you can feel it's a little grittier tune this time. You know, the first one's like kind of cool. And this dude's a badass motherfucker. Now we're a little bit more on the edge here. We're definitely starting to see he's a little more dangerous with this song. Your feelings on Mr. Willie DeVille's It's So Easy. Well, believe it or not, Willie DeVille is... Uh, a much bigger star in France than he is in the U.S. No shit. Yeah, he's known. I mean, amongst amongst people who listen to music. Okay, if you if you if you ask the French person on the street about Willie DeVille, they they can tell you no. But people who listen to music, he's pretty uh, well known over there. He covered. Uh, I remember. Uh, I forget what year it was. Uh, 1992. I have it in my notes. 1992. His cover of Hey Joe. Have you ever heard his cover of Hey Joe? I have not. He covered. A, oh, you have to check it out. He, he covered A Joe with a mariachi band. Hmm. And to this day is my favorite a version of Hey Joe. I'm wow. sorry, Jimmy Hendrix. You know, your version is great, but this is my favorite. And the video of Willie DeVille's version of Hey Joe was playing on French TV. So that's the that's kind of to, to tell you that he was more well-known huh. in France than he, he was in America. He moved to New Orleans uh, for a while. He was he was living down here. Actually, my my really good friend James, he's a luthier. Uh, he makes guitars for all kind of people. He made guitars for Willie DeVille. So hmm. he's, he kind of has that French, you know, connection. Yeah. Um, a lot of his songs, if you go through his catalog, a lot of his songs and even album titles are in French. Like really? he, he, yeah, he had, I, I think he had a, a, in the 80s, he had like a 70s, maybe 80s, he had a, a rock band that was Mink DeVille. I think that was his first mm-hmm. band. It was like a underground kind of, I think like in the New York scene kind of thing, like maybe CBGBs or whatever. And then I think he went more into like a roots music type of, uh, you know, influence, kind of like New Orleans music. I, I kind of went through his catalog uh, preparing for this show and I, I heard a lot of uh, uh, New Orleans uh, influence, New Orleans sound, piano sound influence. He gathered all kind of influences like that. So he's, he's very eclectic. You know, he like he, he 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 grew up in New York, but he's not defined by that. Like he, he moved to New Orleans and he lived, I guess he lived in France for a while. So he's he's very eclectic. I'm going to say this song is not my favorite from his, it. It's okay. It's a good rock song, but to me, it's a little, meh. It's not his, it's not his best. Just go check out his version of Hey Joe. It's a good song for that scene, but I, I don't know. I just, there's nothing that just sticks out at me. What, what do you think? I enjoy it. It's brief. Half the yeah. time you're, you were paying attention to Mike. You know what I mean? We're yeah, really paying yeah. attention to what he's doing, so. But it works. It, it sets a mood. It works in that scene, like, like a lot of songs. Yeah, but absolutely. It's fine. Well, it brings us to song 12, Right in Thunder Alley from Eddie Baram. This song comes from the 1967 Richard Rush film, Thunder Alley. Eddie Baram was originally a member of the short-lived American folk rock band, October Country. That band's claim to fame is that they are the musicians in Steven Spielberg's short film, Amblin. Now this song plays as Zoe and Kim begin their ship's mass stunt. Got a great drum beat to it. Really works. There are 13 musical tracks on this album. I skip three of them. This is not one of them. Okay. I skip usually the, uh, you know, I usually will skip... Uh, the Last Race. 
I will skip Paranoia Prima, and I will skip mm-hmm. Sally and Jack. I know why they're on there. They're part of the score. I get it. I'm, right. You know, and they've got their place. They're not they terrible songs. They work in the movie. Yes. I don't skip this one. I actually like it. It actually makes me drive a little bit faster than I probably should. <laughs> I actually feel, yeah, I'm like, well, let's do this, you know? So I enjoy it. It works perfectly. It works exactly in the in the scene it's in. But even as an instrumental piece, it's that, that drums, that yes. kind of like a Congo beat surf drum that's just fucking pushing you forward. And it does have a bit of a surf song to it, just the guitars yes. have surf to it as well. So I like it. How about yourself? Uh, I like it too. Uh, I did some research today. It was a soundtrack for a Fabian and Annette Funicello movie did you know that i did not good old annette good old mickey mouse club annette <laughs> that's who my wife's name after so that that got my attention it's available on youtube i started watching it it's the same with the last race once you start watching the movie that it's from <laughs> yeah you you're not gonna hear that song the same way <laughs> i mean it, it's an okay movie like i watched like the first 20 25 minutes it, it's a race car driver that supposedly causes a wreck and kills a really uh, a famous uh, a racer and he tries to get another job but wherever he goes people say ah you killed uh, blah 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 so and so and so you know and, and this this song plays while he's uh, Fabian is um, having a fist fight with, with a guy that insulted him in a bar the guy says ah yeah you killed uh, so and so that race and uh, I, I don't think you should be in this bar this bar is too good for you get out of here blah blah and so they start fighting and this song starts and it's it's okay you know and you know fabian uh, and Netflix Michello movies they, they're usually on the beach you know everybody's <laughs> you know, they're doing the limbo you know it, it, this is a little different they, they have car racing and stuff but you know it, it's it's not bad I, like the movie I, i'll probably watch the movie but um it's it's pretty good like i, I like the you're really the selling fuzz. it right now that's what you're selling the hell out of this thing right now <laughs> no but I, I, I like the fuzz guitar like it, it's pretty cool it, it, to me, it reminds me of those spaghetti western scores that I was I was talking about, mm-hmm. like uh, you know Ennio Morricone. It, it's got that really uh, cool fuzz guitar. It, it's it's good. It's good. I like it's in the same realm, but I like it better than the last race. Let, let's just put it that way. What, what what's your feelings about it? I agree, and uh, it is weird that the chord strumming from the spaghetti westerns and the chord strumming from the surf music they do have a bit of a of a kindred spirit with each other for sure. Yeah, well, QT talked about that. That's why he put some surf music in Pulp Fiction. He said surf music was the I think he said something like surf music is the spaghetti western ver- rock version of spaghetti western score or, or something like that. It, it it it's got a kinship. Yeah, you can hear it. You can definitely hear it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially those those fuzz those fuzz down down down. It, it it sounds like the good bad and the ugly. You know, it does. There's, there's a direct direct line uh, uh you know between the two. So it's, I enjoy, it's I enjoy the song. Yeah. yeah it I helps you too. drive a little bit faster. Just does. Yep. And yep. it's quick. Yep. You know, a lot of these songs barely some of them barely top 3 minutes. You know, it's a, it's a very uh Expeditious uh, listen, if, if, if so. And and watch, Thund- I think it's called Thunder Alley. That's a, the movie's called Thunder Alley. It's on YouTube. Yeah, so far, if you haven't noticed, Mr. Fornias has definitely sold uh, Village of the Giants <laughs> and Thunder Alley. He, the Village of the Giants whew, is absolutely horrible. Unbelievable IMDb Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> review from Mr. Fornias today on today's episode. Great job with those. So I do believe uh, the people at RogerEbert.com will be reaching out for your essay I on think the films. So. I think so. Uh, Bo Bridges is in the uh, uh, Village of the Giants, by the way. All He's right, well, one of the Giants. Go. And Ron Howard. So there you go. Ron Howard is the scientist who makes there the, we go. the, We're the in. freaky food who makes uh, that makes the people big. And, and the tarantulas. What more could you want? 
And and big titties apparently, big titties. So there we go. Well, correct because everything you know, expands. Go. You know, and then, big cockroaches. <laughs> Speaking of big titties, I'm just kidding. Good segue <laughs> to our last musical track on the album, the last track in the movie, and the reason I was invited on this podcast. Go ahead. Yes, this is a fantastic song. It's one of his best ending. All my favorite is still Meligroso by Chingon from Kill Bill Volume Two. But Chick Habit from April March. April March is an American singer-songwriter who sings in both English and French. She is also a cartoon animator and did a stint as principal animator for the Ren and Stimpy show. This song is originally a 1964 French song entitled Les Tombeurs Les Filets, or Drop It With Girls. In 1995, April March recorded two covers of it, one with the original French lyrics and the other as Chick Habit, with English lyrics written by March. The song also played during the opening credits of the 1999 comedy, But I'm a Cheerleader. This song plays as Abernathy crushes stuntman Mike Skull with her heel, and then continues on as the first song of the closing credits. I don't know why it works. It just does. It's the trumpets and the song, if you listen to it, mm-hmm. is basically a warning to Mike, hey, yep. if you don't quit your That's chick habit, you're, you're in big fucking trouble, pal. Mm-hmm. Just, it's just brilliantly tied in. It works so well. We've just watched the first half of a film where he brutalizes five women. We now watch him terrorize a bunch of other ones, and now we're not on his side. For a minute that we think he kills one of them, and we don't know how it's going to end, and then they beat the living dog shit out of him, and we're like, okay... And then all of a sudden, the fucking foot comes down, and we watch his head get crushed. You're like, holy shit. And then it's upbeat music. He does it all the time. Sends us out on most of the movies we watch with upbeat fucking music. No matter what's just happened. We've had death happen in a couple of movies at the end, and it's upbeat music. Mr. Orange, Mr. White get blown the fuck away. You put a lime in the coconut. <laughs> He's going <laughs> shuffling out. You know what I mean? Like all these, <laughs> these movies, horrible things have happened. You're like, nah, man, you know, let's go home. This is a pretty good movie. He does it here with this one with Chick Habit. It's such a good fucking song. Your feelings, yes. sir, as apparently I brought you on for the song. And much like when I asked Steve to tell us about his version, I'm really worried about what you're about to say, but no, go for it. No, I did notice you grabbed some lotion. You took your shirt off. I don't know what's happening. No, no, that's not why. Do you know what? Do you know why I'm I'm specifically uh, equipped to talk about? Yes, this song? because this song is originally French, and there's a French there version. Go. Fucking guy. Well, the original is a French song. It's an adaptation of a 1964 French song called "Laisse tomber les filles," and it was not nearly as good a name. I'm just just saying. "Laisse tomber les filles." That's that's the original. That's how it was written. Anyway, you're anti-French, look, sir. You I may, know. Look, you guys made the Statue of Liberty, but oh, it's American now. You know what I'm saying? Over here. <laughs> what, have we done, what have you done for me know. lately, huh? <laughs> we gave you freedom fries. There you go. <laughs> so so it was sung by France Gall in 1964, and it was part of the Ye Ye movement. Do, do you know about the Ye Ye movement? I'm sure you have. Uh, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, the name Yeah, yeah is uh, if you if you talk to a French person, that's about about my parents' age. That's 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 the boomers. Okay, so if you talk oh, to okay. French boomers, they will know about the Yeah, yeah. The name Yeah, yeah comes from the Beatles song "She Loves You." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Yeah, yeah was a, a movement of pop music in France in the early '60s, and it's a lot of those songs were adaptations of American songs like Sweets for My Sweets, you know, the th- songs like that that were adapted in French. This is this is part of the Ye Ye uh, movement, but this is an original song written by one of my favorite 
singer-songwriters of all time and my favorite French singer-songwriter, Serge Gainsbourg. Do you know about Serge Gainsbourg? Oh, who doesn't? Son, oh, come he's on. amazing. So he was, a, <laughs> he was a goalie for the Montreal Canadiens, right? In of the course. 60s? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, Serge Gainsbourg is... He should have been in Dizzy Deeg, Mitch Titch. He was going to be there yeah. when Pete and said Serge. no. Gotcha. And Serge. And Serge. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, uh, like in uh, Bev Beverly Hills Cop Surge, you know. No, but, but uh, Serge Gainsbourg is a pop genius, and re he really is. To, to just to just to tell you the the scope of Serge Gainsbourg's talent. When he died in 1991, his career started in the 50s, and he died in 1991. And the president of France in 1991, when he died, said he elevated pop music. To high art. Mm. That was epitaph from the French president. And it is true. He started writing pop songs. Well, he started uh, writing kind of jazz, jazzy songs in the 50s. You know, that was jazzy. And then in the in the early 60s, then he latched on to that, that, that new pop uh, yeah, yeah movement. And he started writing incredible songs for... Um, for France Gall, for Brigitte Bardot, he he wrote, he he did a, a duet with Brigitte Bardot, which this is a whole story. I can do a two-hour podcast on Serge Gainsbourg. <laughs> Serge Gainsbourg is the most divisive and controversial figure in French pop culture, bar none. There's nobody that divides French people more than Serge Gainsbourg. You either love Serge Gainsbourg or you think he's a disgusting human being. So there's no in between. I mean, did he, what, did he have a Michael Jackson fallout when he died? Like, you know, he went from the king of pop to not being quite. a pedophile? I mean, what, what happened? No, How can you be that, that? Well, no. Not quite. How do you get that no. big of a separation? <laughs> okay. So, for example, my parents hated Serge Gainsbourg. I love Serge Gainsbourg. Makes sense. If, yeah. If you like Serge Gainsbourg, you think he's a genius, like me. If you don't like him, you think he's, he was a disgusting alcoholic, and that's saying, he, okay. That's saying a lot for France. Right, exactly. So if, if French people think you're an alcoholic, exactly. You got okay. problems. So, yeah. Yeah. It's like being, okay. a, like, like when they said uh, Adler, the drummer of Guns N' Roses, had a drug problem, and he's in Guns N' Fucking Roses. You got right. a drug problem. When the other guys in Guns N' Roses tell you you have a drug problem. Yeah, hey, drug maybe you shouldn't problem. shoot heroin right into your penis. You might have a drug problem. <laughs> <laughs> when Axl Rose tells you you have a drug problem. Yeah, exactly. So it's that type of thing. But do yourself a favor, Scott. If if Go on YouTube and type Serge Gainsbourg Whitney Houston. Okay. Just, just, just type Serge Gainsbourg Whitney Houston. He was on a... It better he, not be some kind of weird porn. I will... No, 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 no. All right. I will tag you in it. <laughs> <laughs> you can do that. It's, it's Whitney Houston was singing. It was a live variety show every Saturday night, the, the big variety show in France. Every Saturday night. We watched that with my parents growing up. And Whitney Houston came, and I, I forget what song she had. It might have been like, uh, I want to dance with somebody, uh, Unchained My Heart, or whatever big song she had at the time. And Serge Gainsbourg just happened to be on the set and they had they had a post song chat with the Houston and they sat her next to Serge Gainsbourg who was on his I don't even know how many whiskeys. Oh no. And it was live TV, okay? So there was no bleeping, there was no cutting. It it was broadcast live. And it's not safe for work. Let, let me let me just uh tell the <laughs> Listeners of this podcast, you have to watch. The, this is one of the most cringe videos you will ever see. And remember, it was live TV in France. There was no cutting. There was no eight second delay. None of that. That was broadcast live. 
and it's not safe for work. Do not watch that at work with the sound on. But that's all I'm going to say. And that's one of the controversies he had. One time he was uh, uh, interviewed and he had a 500 francs uh, bail, which, mm-hmm. he, which was the higher, highest denomination bail. It's like a $100 bail, like mm-hmm. you you know, so he was explaining how much the uh, the tax, uh, um, the French tax service was taken out of his earnings every year. So he took the the five hundred dollar bill, which was a huge amount of money for anybody in France. You know, like people just working people, a five hundred dollar mm-hmm. five hundred five hundred franc bill was huge. And he lit it on fire with, you know, with his, uh, um, you know, he lit it on fire and until he got to almost the end of it. And he stopped it and he said, this is what I have left when the tax, the, the uh, like the equivalent, the French mm-hmm. IRS is done with me. This is what I have left. You would have thought that he committed murder on live TV. <laughs> the next day it was like, how could he do that? The light money on fire when people are struggling, blah, blah, blah. That's one of the many scandals he did. It's it's hilarious. Like if 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 you look through his life, it's there's so many scandals. I can't even start. I, 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 like I said, I could do a two hour uh, show on Serge Gainsbourg. But I just talked about his scandals. His music is incredible. Now recently, a friend of mine kind of showed me that some of his melodies were kind of inspired by famous, uh, you know, classical music melodies and, you know, he kind of, or Afri- some African rhythms and, you know, so, so he pulls from different, you know, inspirations and, and influence, but he is a true genius. Like if you listen to his songs, I mean, if you're not a French speaker, you're going to miss some of the, cause his, his uh, words were witty. It was a lot of play on words, you know, like double entendre and, and things like that. As a matter of fact, France Gall, who sings uh, the original of Czech Habit, she sang that the Czech Habit song, Les Tombes les Filles. And the next song he wrote for her was about a little girl um, sucking on a lollipop. <laughs> and she sang the song and she was young. And the, the words are about this little girl who's, who goes to heaven every time she gets her tongue on the lollipop stick and blah, blah, blah. And she sang the song. She was innocent. And then after she recorded the song, somebody told her, you do know what he means by that, right? And she's like, no, what? And somebody explained the, the double meaning of the song. And she went, oh, my. And she never spoke to him for the rest <laughs> of her life. Never worked with him again. So he's that type of guy. You know, he's, he's going to shake the tree. He's he, he was <laughs> the opposite of political uh, politically correct. He would be canceled today a hundred times. But he's just a genius. I know, like, like I said, I'm, I, I'm just going to stop talking about Serge Gainsbourg because I could go on and on and on. So like I said, I, I'm, I'm just, I, could, I could go on and on about Serge Gainsbourg and I'm so so happy that I was invited on this podcast to talk about Serge Gainsbourg to an American audience because you'll have to go check him out. And like I said, controversial, like capital C. Like if you go to France and you say Serge Gainsbourg, you're either going to find people who say he was a genius and, or, or people who say he was disgusting. <laughs> There's no in between. Serge Gainsbourg, rest in peace. <laughs> and he gave us that song. There you go. Chick Habit, one of the best ending songs in a Tarantino film. And it takes us to the three other tracks on the soundtrack, which are all dialogue tracks. They are Planning and Scheming, which is Dove and Omar at the bar. We have Stuntman Mike, which is where Pam finds out who Stuntman Mike is. He's a stuntman. And whatever, however, when Zoe and Kim talk about doing ship's mass. There's a few in here that, that got missed. I, I, there's a couple of, uh, I'm surprised the, the Death Proof 
one yes. not in here you know there's there's a couple yeah because the one the one the, to to try to get the girls to the to the lake house i think is weak that that, that is that is not there's that a couple of conversations in that long take going around the table in the second um, set of the movie when they're at the diner that has a lot of like, you know, why Kim yes. needs a gun. And there's a lot of different ones where, oh, yeah. or why Zoe was falls in a hole. Like there's a lot of good ones that they could have used from there. But who knows why he chose what he chose. Of those three, which one's your favorite of the three? Okay, so so uh, tell me again which one's because. Planning and uh, scheming, I, Stuntman Mike okay. and whatever, however. Oh, Stuntman Mike. Yeah, he's a stuntman. Yeah. He's, hey, Warren. He's Who's this man. guy? Stuntman Mike. Who's telling my mic? He's telling me. I love that. It's just, it's just so it's just so Tarantino. He's telling me. Yeah, he's telling me. Yeah, so it's just so so him. That. That's yeah. that's Tarantino. I, I like the uh, however. That's that's cool. Too. It's a good one. Yeah, because Kim is great. She's one of the best oh, moments of the film. Yes, yeah. she's amazing. She's got a lot. Like and there's that whole car ride. They could have had things in there too, but they just don't. Whatever it is, what it is. Maybe he wants you to go see the film. I like when when the other one says, uh, you know, I, I bring. What, what would you bring? Well, a knife. You know what happens to people who bring knife, who have knives? They get shot. They get shot. <laughs> well, at least have a pepper spray. I'm gonna try to put them down. I don't give a skin rash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's great. That, that 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 whole that whole that whole conversation is great. Yeah. That's that to me. That's Tarantino. Yeah. The the the, the conversation in in the in the chili parlor. Let's let's try and get them uh, bring him a, a, a shot. That's just. Oh. Yeah, I know. I, I know it's campy. Yeah, I, I know, know it's campy on purpose. I know it's campy on purpose. I know it's grindhouse. But to me, the real Tarantino is yeah the the Kim yep. and Abernathy and yeah yeah that's that's much better. It's great. Now there are seven other tracks that aren't that are heard in the film that aren't on this soundtrack, but most of them are selected score pieces. So we really aren't missing out on any of the really key musical moments. The only other song is "Funky Fanfare" by Keith Mansfield. Mm-hmm. All the rest are yeah. pretty much all uh, score pieces. So didn't miss out much on that. Let's ask our guest. Some fucking questions. That leads us to our final questions, where we're going to find out what rates and what doesn't rate for Mr. Fornias, who on his third go-round did a great job of not giving away his answers this time. So he has learned. He's now an American, no longer an American. So there we go. No. First up, what is your favorite track on this soundtrack, sir? All right. So my favorite is, I might have given it up uh, earlier, but my favorite is Down in Mexico. Way above everything else. To me, a second would be uh, Jeepster by T-Rex, but okay. Down in Mexico is by far my favorite. That's so, it, it, like I said, I could listen to that song on repeat. I never get tired of that song. Every time it starts, just the intro. The intro is so ominous and awesome. Just just, just that that intro. And I, every time that song plays, I never, I never skip it, and I always listen to it and always enjoy it. That's, it's, it I love that song. So it's way, way above everything else on the soundtrack for me. Great, great fucking track. What is your least favorite track on the soundtrack? Well, uh, I might have uh, kind of hinted at that earlier. It's Paranoia Prima. I'm I'm not into the Jello soundtrack, especially on its own. That's not my. That's not me. That's not. It's not my thing. It's not my thing. It, to me, it fits in a movie. It's it, you know, it's this the same refrain that we we, mm-hmm. we talked about and during the True Romance soundtrack. Perfect for the song. For, yeah, perfect for the perfect movie. For the moment. As yeah. a CD track, that I skip it. Oh, again, that's going to be on your your death playlist, just so you know. Yes, I guess so. <laughs> your funeral playlist. <laughs> <laughs> now, what is the most underrated track on this amazing soundtrack? 
for you? I don't know how rated those songs are, but I would say uh, Staggerly because it, it could fly under the mm -hmm. radar of most people, but I, th I think it's a great song. And like mm -hmm. you said, it, it that introduction to Kurt Russell, just just QT can can just take a song, in, an actor, and a set and an angle, and he just puts all those things mm -hmm. together. And it's just genius. It's a, it's yeah. amazing. You you want to be sitting next to a, a, a stuntman Mike and and have some of his nachos and just hear his stories about being on the Virginian and it just you just want to be there. It, yeah. it's, it's perfect. And and the song on its own is great. Like I I I, I like it. I'm gonna be honest with you. This is spoiled. I've never been to Austin, Texas, but this has spoiled me. If it's not as cool as with this movie, is I don't want to fucking go. You know what I mean? Like, well, it's, like it's got to be that cool now. But I know it's not gonna. But it's kind of spoiled. It. I hate to break it to you, Scott, but if you haven't been. To to Austin and it's 2023. Too late. The, I missed the, the it. The long you wait. Yeah. I, 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 I went there in the early 2000s and I think I missed it. I didn't know. It's not I think. I know I missed the golden age of Austin. Yeah. Golden age of Austin was the 80s and the 90s. I went there the uh, first time in the early 2000s and I had some of that. So I experienced, I, I had, I'm like the, you know, the uh, Haley, Haley Comet. You have a yep. comet and you have yep. like the end of the comet. I think I called the end. Uh, I yeah. got the tail of the Austin Comet. And I think the more you wait, the less Austin is going to be Austin. And and, and you, you can say that about anywhere. You can say yeah. that about Paris. You can say that. I'm sure you can say that about New York City. I've never been to yeah. New York City. But I'm sure if you tell me 2023 New York City is not is not 1990s yeah. New York City. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. So if you've never been to Austin... It's I'm I haven't been in a few years, but I know it's still cool as hell. It's it's my it's honestly my favorite American city. I, I absolutely love Austin, Texas. I wish I could live there, but I'm not a, a you know a, a tech bro from California that that made a a, a billion dollars building an app in in the 2000s. I'm not that, so I, I can't afford a nice condo. The problem with Austin is it used to be awesome. And it got so. What's 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 the name when they um when when they take a seedy neighborhood and they and they and they build condos gentrified it's gentrified it's it's so gentrified and I know I sound like a you know cork sniffer hipster, but what they do is they tear down buildings and they build really expensive condos. Yeah, it just it's not the same. Where does this soundtrack rank for you in all of the soundtracks? Well. Uh, I don't have a definite number, uh, but to me, it's top tier. Are we counting uh, Dust Till Dawn? You can count, yeah. I count them all. I mean, yeah, I mean, okay. whatever. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously, it's not his technically movie one, but yeah, I count them. Why not? Yeah, so to me, it's under, obviously, uh, Dust Till Dawn, because if you listen to that episode, it's my favorite uh, Tarantino-related soundtrack. But to me, it's top tier. To me, it's up there with... Uh, uh, Dust Till Dawn, Pulp Fiction. To me, it's up there. It, it really is. It's in that top tier. It's in the top shelf. If if we're looking at Tarantino soundtracks, like the you know the shelves in a bar, it's top shelf. It's it's where the really good liquor is. What 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 are your thoughts? I think this has moved over time. It's moved to my favorite. I know it's your favorite. Yeah, to me, it's top. It's top three. Because I three. thought about it. You know, you can go. There's a couple albums you can go. Oh, I'll take this song. This 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 one. The only ones I wouldn't use are just they're the score pieces, but the actual musical Song, songs, songs yeah. kill they they all it's kill so they're strong. just so good it's, it's very strong and it's one of the few that actually now there's always musical moments as we've gone through all the other soundtracks where they, these songs really work and then there's other ones that don't make it very few didn't make it and then just that first half it's all it's all about the songs 
I mean, the songs and the imagery are all married for that first half of that film. I mean, every everything's a hit. It's hard for me to even pick my favorite. Yeah. Like, Baby Chew, Staggly, Down in Mexico. Like, I could yeah. keep coming. They just keep coming. Did you notice that most of the songs are from this, either the 60s or the very early 70s? Yeah. It's a very narrow time mm -hmm. frame that they come from. And I, I know the movie is supposed to be like a 70s grindhouse movie. Ish, what yeah. it is is yeah. mostly Jungle Julia picking the songs and her friends picking the songs at the chili parlor. That's that's yeah. what most of the soundtrack is. And it's Jungle Julia, who's that this famous DJ, you know, that kind of fancies herself having the, the best taste in music and blah, 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 and her friends, the same thing. So it's it's really that world. We're hanging out with Jungle Julia and her friends, and we're listening to those cool B-sides and, and stuff that they kind of have you know, picked out of out of a bunch of songs that we might... I've never heard most of the songs on that soundtrack. And that's what's great. It's the same thing as uh, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, when Pulp Fiction came out, I didn't know barely any songs on that on that soundtrack. I just discovered all those songs. But this is like a very, like deep cuts, mm -hmm. like the Joe Tex. I never really got into Joe Tex. I, I should. And that Eddie Floyd song, that's a deep cut. So he just pulls the deep cuts and he just puts them with the, the scenes in it. It's another great soundtrack. So to me, it's top tier. Like I would think top three honestly And that will do it for this month's Hymnal Devotional. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Pat Fournier, co-host of the B News USA podcast for joining me. Now you can find the link to the B News USA podcast along with the socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now if you'd be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the church would greatly appreciate it as it will help other fellow Tarantino fans like yourselves find the show. So join me again in two weeks as Petros Patillas, host of the Cage and Copa Connections, and co-host of the Getting to For You podcast returns to the show to help me take a look at two of the films that helped inspire Tarantino's first revisionist history film, Inglorious Bastards. Those films being The Dirty Dozen and Kill Them All and Come Back Alone. So until next time, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. Motherfucker. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.